Here in Luke chapter 7, we're introduced to two wonderful stories that illustrate the compassion and the power of Jesus Christ. This first episode we'll look at is the Roman centurion who had a servant. I'm pretty sure we can say that he was a Jewish servant. Could it be that he brought him with him when he was uh, deployed to Capernaum? But more than likely, he grabbed locals to be his servants. And uh, he is this Gentile Roman commander, but yet Jesus responds to him. And as we're going to see, he's marveling at this great faith of this Roman centurion. The second story, Jesus resurrects a young man who's being carried off to the grave. He sees the grieving mother. He's moved to compassion to perform the miracle. And as we read, this fear came over the people. They did begin to glorify God. And then they proclaimed Jesus to be a great prophet. Now Luke also tells us, that the people said, God has visited his people in verse 16. God has visited his people. That begs the question, who are God's people? The Jews would say, we are. Romans don't count. Army guys don't count. They're against us. We're the chosen people. And we have seen this great miracle. And so God has visited his people. People, We're going to explore that, though, so hang on to that question. Who are God's people? Now, let's start with this centurion. Who is he? This centurion, he's a, a Roman officer. He's uh, in charge of about 100 soldiers. To become a centurion, you had to show great nerve, agility, heroism in battle. Centurions were men who were drenched in blood. Even as they got promoted to centurion rank, when they led people in battle, they were on the front lines. They weren't the commissioned officers who sat back in the tent kind of giving out the orders. They were leading the charge. They were with their men. They didn't sit back. They were hardened warriors. Some might even say they were butchers. They're mercenaries. The centurion had experienced the worst of human nature in bloody combat. Typically, the Jews hated them because they were there to give peace, make sure rebellion and insurrection was put down. But they were also men of money. Because of their rank as a non-commissioned officer, proven in welfare, their salary was probably at least ten times that of an army regular. So they had some money. Hence, this guy was able to build the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, we can only imagine this centurion and his men were deployed to Capernaum to keep the peace. It's on the northern banks of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus did most of his ministry. This story follows um, Jesus going into the wilderness, being tempted, coming back to Galilee, doing the Sermon on the Mount, all the things that Jerry has been uh, teaching us about in previous weeks. Capernaum was the home of the Apostle Peter. He ran his fishing business uh, from this area on the Sea of Galilee. Now, Capernaum was not the 
hotbed of Jewish riots and rebellions like Jerusalem. But it was a major district. A lot of the insurrections we read about in history happened in Jerusalem and the Romans crushed these rebellions um, mightily, brutally. We don't read of any rebellions in Capernaum, but it was important enough to have a strong presence there of Roman garrison of soldiers. And they were there to do one thing, like in Jerusalem, keep the peace, make sure everybody obeyed the law, the Roman law, made sure everybody paid their taxes. So we normally think of these centurions as these rugged, cruel Roman soldiers who kind of have this violent swagger to them. And rightfully so, because that's who they were. But boy, Luke paints a completely different picture of this centurion, doesn't he? I mean, this centurion, he has a Jewish servant that he has genuine regard for. He loves this servant. He doesn't treat him with contempt. This servant is dying and this centurion has uh, compassion and is going to do everything in his power and means to see that he is brought to health. We read that he is friendly with the local Jewish elders. That's interesting, isn't it? This is one of the reasons I know the Bible is real. <laughs> because we don't get just one side, you know, all the Jewish people in Jerusalem hating the Romans. You know, we get this other little piece in a different part of the country here. We don't see the contempt, the hatred for the Jews. This is not as an adversarial conflict between Romans and Jews as we see in the other Gospels in Jerusalem. These Jewish elders speak highly of him. They intercede on his behalf. They go to Jesus. They say, Jesus, he's worthy. This guy is good. He loves our nation. He loves our culture. And he's used his own money to build our synagogue so that we can teach our Old Testament lessons. I've uh, been to the ruins of this synagogue. I, I want to go again. I told the 9 o'clock group, save, save your nickels and pennies. About two years, we're, we're going to take a trip to Jerusalem. And trust me, these, these stories just jump to life. Right down the street from the uh, synagogue there in Capernaum is the ruins of supposedly Peter's house. A lot going on in Capernaum. Now I think, first of all, this story gives a great warning to us about judging people based on their occupation, what they do for a living, their country of origin, and lumping them in with all the others who are like that. been easy for them to oh, he's a Roman centurion. He's brutal. We don't have anything to do with a guy like that. But again, notice what it says in, in verse 3. When this centurion heard about Jesus, he sends Jewish elders asking Jesus to come save the life of him. He's got a relationship here. Now, if you just read that verse out of context, you would say, oh, man, they're under orders. We got to go get Jesus or he's going to slaughter us. No, he's got a relationship with these guys. Now, how did this centurion hear about Jesus? Well, first of all, it's his business to know about everything in his territory. He knew about Jesus. He was in charge of keeping order in the region. He had his little ears everywhere. He had soldiers going out and coming back, giving reports. 
He had people observing everything going on under his command. All the news of Galilee would have come to this centurion. Particularly, he heard reports about this guy who had 12 lieutenants and a lot of people following him. He was well aware. But I think we have to read between the lines a little bit here. Uh, Jerry and I, we had coffee the other day to talk through this passage, and he and I agree. We think this centurion was probably looking for the Jewish Messiah. Probably knew who Jesus was or suspected he was the Messiah to come. He, he's friendly with the local leaders. He's, he's financed their synagogue. So he has probably been strongly introduced to the teachings of the Old Testament. Now I think possibly, and this is my imagination that goes wild, but I think perhaps the unsung hero of this story may have been the dying servant himself. Perhaps this dying servant, he served his Roman master well. He wasn't one of these guys, I got to do it because he's the boss of the country, you know. He must have served this centurion with diligence, endured himself to this centurion with his loyalty, with his work ethic, with his attitude. Apparently, or at least he had overcome this idea that all Romans are bad, all centurions are bad. Apparently he endured himself to the centurion. He wasn't one of those who, who just showed up to work to collect the paycheck and do the minimum and then went and criticized his boss to everybody else when he wasn't around. This guy bonded with his master out of true love, obedience, selfless acts of service going beyond the call of duty. I'll go so far as to speculate the reason this centurion was a lover of the Jewish nation and financed the synagogue is because he had a servant who walked the walk. I would speculate that this centurion's interest in a Jewish Messiah who heals found its start in the actions and the words of this servant. Tell you what, when I get to heaven, I want to meet this servant. I want all these blanks filled in and not just my wild imagination speculating. What I want to ask you this morning is, will you be that kind of person at your place of work? Will you be this kind of person at school? Will you be the one who goes beyond To make an impression on those that you are under their authority that they might look to Jesus? You remember some of the teachings of Jesus? You can speak back to me here. Jesus commanded his disciples. He said, if you're going along and the Roman soldier gives you his pack and he demands that you carry it one mile, what are you supposed to do? Carry it two. If the Roman soldier comes by and demands your cloak, what are you to do? Give the coat also. Yeah. This guy's living this out. Will you be the one who will be that person in the workplace or at school to the glory of God? Your attitude, your influence, all of that builds in to the light within you of Jesus Christ to influence those that we are 
underneath their authority. Now, as much as I love this servant, all the glory goes to God, right? I mean, God partners with us in the sharing of the gospel. God uses us to share the gospel with other people, but it all belongs to him, the glory. So in addition to having this great servant, I'm going to say that this centurion had probably heard the words of Jesus with his very own ears. Now, I don't think this is speculation. If you'll go back, if you have your Bibles open, go to Luke chapter 4. We'll have these verses on the screen. In Luke chapter 4, verse 31. Now, this is just a few chapters ago. We don't know the time lapse. It's not long. It could be days, weeks, no more than a month. But notice what it says in Luke 31. And Jesus came down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee. He was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. Now, underline that word authority if it's your own Bible. If it's a pew Bible, you know, take it home with you if you write in it. That word authority is going to come back into play, right? I'm a man under authority. You've got authority. I think there's a great possibility this centurion heard the teaching and the authority of Jesus when he spoke in the, ten of, in the synagogue that he had financed. Now, he's an outsider. He's not allowed on the inside. He has to stand in the court of the Gentiles. Isn't that an amazing picture? Here's the guy who paid all the money and he can't go in. I think the centurion probably witnessed the following miracle in the next verse, verse 33. There was a man in the synagogue possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. Now, this guy can go in, <laughs> but the centurion can't because he's Gentile. But the demonic guy can go in and cause all kinds of problems inside the synagogue. He cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus cast out that demon. Now, if, if the centurion wasn't an eyewitness of this, man, he got immediate reports from trusted soldiers, knowing this is true. Then a few verses later, in verse 38, it says that Jesus arose, he left the synagogue, entered Simon's home, Peter's home, just down the street. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they made a request of him on her behalf. Hang on to that. Somebody requested Jesus on somebody else's behalf. I'm going to send some people to ask Jesus something on my behalf, on behalf of somebody that I care about. We can go to people, go to the Lord on the behalf of others. And standing over her, Jesus rebuked the fever and it left her. Isn't that interesting? He rebuked the fever. You know, Baptists have been trying to explain that away for 300 years. What does that mean? And he immediately arose, and, or she immediately arose, waited on them. And then while the sun was setting, all who had any sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid hands on how many of them? Every one of them. He, every one. No one got turned away. So this centurion has this beloved dying servant. He asks for Jesus to come. Jesus is eager to come. Now if I were writing the Hollywood script, I would have Jesus remembering the centurion standing outside the synagogue when he was teaching that first day when he came to Capernaum. 
delivering that sermon. But as Jesus begins to close in on the home, he's not very far. The centurion sends another group of people out there with this message, verse 6 through 9. Lord, circle that Lord, not a great prophet has arisen in our midst. He says, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. I'm not even worried to come out in person. That's the reason I'm sending these folks to you. But just say the word, my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority. I heard you teaching with authority. Soldiers under me, I say to this one, go, and he goes. To another one, come, and he comes. I say to my slave, do this, and he does it. Well, he can't now because he's sick, and I need you to heal him. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled. There's not a lot of things God marvels at. <laughs> he marvels at this. And he turned around and he said to his 12 disciples, the Jewish elders, all those who are following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Wow. Wow. He's astonished at not his faith, but his great faith. Great faith, we all have faith. We all have faith in something. Great faith is put in Jesus Christ alone. Great faith is put in Christ, and we surrender under his authority to do whatever he says to do. I mean, you either believe something or you don't. Faith is like a light switch. It's either on or it's off. There are no dimmer switches with faith. You cannot believe 80% that Jesus is the Son of God. You can't say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm almost, I'm 99% sure that Jesus is the Son of God. That's not faith. That's disbelief. You're not convinced yet. You're not completely persuaded. The centurion was persuaded. And Jesus praises him for having this great faith, a faith that he has not found in all of Israel to this point. I'm going to give you two things to carry home with you today. This centurion believed two things. This is important. Two things that this centurion believed that very few people believe. Two things he believed that a lot of people do not believe. The first one is he believed in his own unworthiness. I'm unworthy. What, what? You're a Roman officer. He's had people telling him how good he is all his life. He's a friend of the Jews. He's even got them convinced. He's built a synagogue. For God's people. But that doesn't mean he deserves anything from God or from Jesus Christ. And he understood that. He knew he was unworthy to even go meet Jesus. He knew he was unworthy to have Jesus come to meet him. He was unworthy. And most people that we run into don't believe that. Most people think they're worthy. Most people think 
they're good enough, they should get some favor from God. Most people think they're pretty good people and God owes them something. And until we come to grips with our unworthiness in front of a holy God, we can never have great faith. He alone can make us worthy. Second thing he believed that a lot of people don't believe is he believed in the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. He likened Jesus to a military commander. He knew that whatever Jesus commanded, it would be done. He knew that the words of Jesus were sufficient. The words of Jesus were sufficient. Lord, all you got to do is say the word. It will happen and I will submit to it and I will be obedient to it. I am in full surrender. Who are God's people? They're people of great faith. They're people who have understood their initial unworthiness, but they believed in the power of Jesus Christ to change them, and then they surrendered to the authority and to the words of Jesus Christ. That is a definition of God's people. Now let me ask you this morning, do you have a story like this? Do you have a story like this? Where you've come to a point in your life where you realized your own unworthiness. You quit listening to yourself or other people how good and great you are. How good a husband you are. How good a worker you are. How great a coach you are with a kid's soccer team. Have you come to grips with your unworthiness? And then submitted yourself, surrendered yourself to the authority of Jesus Christ. To do whatever he says with the rest of your life. To follow Jesus. That's a decision I would urge you. And if I could twist your arm to make today. Because that decision has eternal ramifications to it. Now we transition into this second story, and I'm going to be a lot briefer with it. Story of a young man, dead now raised. And in those days, and, and, and even to an extent in the present age, when a widow has no family, um, or, you know, they, they become financially dependent on the love and charity of family. More so in Jesus' day, and this was her only child, a man, so not only is she grieving the loss of his life, she faces a future of dependency on the benevolent aid of other people who are not her family. And I love this because when Jesus saw this, he has compassion on her and brings the young man to life. The compassion of God starts with him. She doesn't ask anything of Jesus. Not like the centurion asking for help. I mean, she's just in dire straits. And yet God has compassion on her like he has compassion on all of us. Let me give you a couple of devotional thoughts here. There are two groups of people who intersected that day, who bypassed each other. There are two groups of people that met each other in this story. 
There was one group, and they were headed to a cemetery. And there was another group who was following Jesus, and they were headed into the city of Nain, a city of vibrant life. Now let that kind of be an illustration for us, okay? Because there's two groups of people in this world. There's one group that is headed to death and hell. And there's another group who are following Jesus who are headed toward a city on a hill full of life. Who are God's people? Those who are following Jesus headed to an eternal city of glory, joy, perfect peace. There were two only sons that crossed paths that day. There was the only son of a human being and he was dead in the same way that all humans die. The other was the only son of God who is eternal and he gives life freely to all who believe in him and surrender to his authority. He is the abundant life and even human death could not contain him. There were two sufferers that met that day. There was one broken-hearted widow going to bury her only son. And the other was the Lamb of God who came into this world to suffer rejection, crucifixion, death for the sins of the world. And there are two enemies that met that day. The first enemy was death. Death had invaded and devastated this little family. But like the Apostle Paul would say later, Oh, death, where is your sting? Because the enemy of death came the other way, life-giving Jesus. And he defeated death that day, drove him away, and then permanently drove death away on Resurrection Sunday. I think I can get an amen on that. My goodness. What two great stories about the power the majesty, the compassion of our God, and what our response should be. Now what does this passage say about Jesus? A couple things I made notes of. In one story, Jesus can prevent death. In the other story, he can counteract it. Resurrects the young man. There's three resurrections in the Gospels. From those being dead a few minutes to those a few hours, and then Lazarus dead four days. What does this say about Jesus? Jesus enters into those things that would defile him. Now, now hang on to that for a moment. Defile him in the understanding of the Jews. First of all, you don't enter into a Gentile's home. He was willing to. No indication he made it to the centurion, but he was headed there. If he had gone into that centurion's home, he would have been defiled. Now he touches a corpse. Trust me, you go back to old Levitical law, that's seven days where you have to separate yourself. You're unclean for seven days. It, it, it seems to me Jesus is always defiling himself on our behalf. He's touching lepers, he's touching prostitutes, he's touching sinful people like you and me. He enters into our world, so to speak. And yet the sinless Lamb of God to die for our brokenness. What does this passage say about Jesus? He reacts very strongly 
to great faith and surrender to his authority. What does this passage say about Jesus? It says he's full of compassion. He cares for you just as he cared for this widow whose lot was low. And then what does this passage say about you and me? This passage tells us that once we were outsiders, just like this centurion was. He wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile. He was Roman. He wasn't Israeli. He had to stand outside the courts of the Gentiles. He wasn't allowed in where God's people was. He was an outsider, but Jesus brought him into his family and into his kingdom. Just like he has us through his salvation that he gives us. Even our best efforts are unworthy of Jesus. But once we were outsiders, once we were unworthy, but now we are deemed worthy. The Jewish people prided themselves on being God's people. Being men and women of faith, descendants of Abraham. The father of faith, holders and keepers of the one true faith. And yet they didn't have a great faith like this centurion. And as a result, Jesus rebukes them, the elders, even his own disciples and those followed him for having little faith and no surrender. As I close this in prayer, 